the word of our Lord from the, God, uh, from the Old Testament book of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was on, was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth every living creature according to its kind, cattle, creeping thing, and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. Seed. To you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life. I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading of your holy word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you have for us this morning. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you would lead us, that your spirit would move among us, that you would minister to our hearts and our minds so that we might better know and love and reflect you in this world. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. The image of God, it's a, a huge theme. It is... One of the earliest themes that we encounter in the biblical text, it is part of the creation story, and it's, a, and it's a theme that actually comes up also in the story of redemption in the New Testament. In fact, the book of Colossians tells us that Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, that he is the image, that is, that which is seen of the invisible God, of the God that can't be seen. So as Jesus said to uh, his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, If you've seen me, you've seen God the Father. You know what God looks like. You know what God lives like. You know how God acts and behaves, how God interacts with others, how God treats sinners and those that are lost. But what does it mean for us to be created in God's image? I do, on this handout, have quite a number of lengthy quotes for you. Well, quotes, some of them, a couple of them in particular are quite lengthy. Uh, And I do want to walk through them together so that we can kind of springboard off of them and unpack some of some of what we encounter in them. The first is a quote, a lengthy quote by Karl Barth. And he spoke of the summit of of creation, man and woman created in and after the image of God. Then he says it is God's rest, that rest that happens on the seventh day. It is God's rest, which is the conclusion of the one, which is God's creation in the beginning of the, earth, of the other, man's work, as after all, God gave him dominion over the world, told him to be fruitful and multiply, to bring into subjection the world. 
He says of this rest that God's free, solemn, joyful satisfaction with that, with that which has taken place and has been completed as creation. This rest is God entering into satisfaction with the world he's made. His invitation also to man to rest with him. With him to be satisfied with that which has taken place through him. So as God rests, God is not just ceasing from his labors, but God is, is, is entering into a, a joyful celebration of the world that he's made. And he invites us also, as he's, as he's given us charge, being created in his image, to subdue his creation, he invites us also to rest and enjoy with him. The goal of creation, at the same time, the beginning of all that follows, that is, all that man has been called to do as, as, as creatures made in God's image, the goal is the event of God's Sabbath freedom, his Sabbath rest and Sabbath joy, in which man, too, has been summoned to participate. Again, God is inviting us to rest with him, to have joy and freedom with him, it is the event of divine rest in the, face of, in the face of the cosmos completed with the creation of man, a rest which takes precedence over all man's eagerness and zeal to enter upon his task. Man is created to participate in this rest. Bart goes on to note how interesting it is that before, before the first day of the next week, they that the scriptures tell us that God rested. God's already charged man with working. He's already charged us with being creative, being made in his image. But before we're to set about our work, God enters into rest. He inhabits his temple, the temple that he has created, and he invites us also into that rest by implication. For he's made us to know him and to love him. There are a few takeaways of being created in God's image, and I've listed five here for you. Being created in the image of God means that we were made to share the nature and character of God. God made us for himself. In fact, uh, St. Augustine, in his, in his uh, confessions, his lengthy work, The Confessions, which is a series of prayers, he begins with the prayer saying, O God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We were made to share the nature and character of God. Not to become God, but having been made in his image, we were made to reflect him, to look like him, to live like him, to behave like him, to interact with other persons made in his image as he does. We are made to share the nature and character of God. And that's not just something that we conclude based upon the creation account. It's not just something that we assume about the text. Peter, in the, in the latter parts of the New Testament, even says just as much. In his first epistle... Is it his first epistle? Now, in his second epistle, he says at the very beginning of it, in chapter 1, 2 Peter, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
as his divine power. Notice, notice how big Peter's theology here, here is about human potential in the grace of God. He says, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Not just how to live, but also how to live godly lives. Through the knowledge of him, or through knowing him, who called us to glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. So these are promises of God. That through these promises of God, you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Here, Peter's talking about in this life, becoming partakers of God's nature and character. If our understanding of the good news doesn't get us to that point, offer us that kind of hope, then our understanding of the good news is not a completely biblical and fully developed biblical understanding of what the good news of God is for us in Christ. Because we were made to share the nature and character of God, and Christ has redeemed us so that we might share the nature and character of God. But another takeaway is that we were made to correspond to the pattern of God's life. That's kind of another small step in that same direction. We were made to live like God. God is the prototype of how life as a person ought to be lived. Remember before creation, this harkens back to Trinity Sunday. Before God created the world, there was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who lived in perfect love together, who lived in perfect freedom, perfect self-giving, self-surrendering love for one another. And it's in that pattern that God has created us to reflect His life, to be patterned according to how he lives, to interact with others as he does. And so we were also made to know God through intimate fellowship. God made us to know him, to relate to him, to be in fellowship with him. We were made to know him, love him, and reflect him to the world in an intimate relationship. He created us for that relationship, and in Christ His Son, through the power of His Holy Spirit, He invites us and welcomes us into that intimate relationship because it's for that relationship that God created us in His image. He didn't create the animals in His image. He didn't create the trees in His image. They may reflect His goodness and His care for His creation. They may reflect His beauty. Tom even... Remind us of the beauty of wild turkeys this morning. But those things are not created in God's image to know Him. To be in intimate fellowship and relationship with Him. But we were. We were made to enter into mutually fulfilling relationships. Because, again, in the heart of eternity, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, lives eternally in mutually fulfilling relationships as the Father lives for the sake of the Son and the Son lives for the sake of the Father and as the Spirit lives for the sake of the Son and the Father as they live for the sake of the Spirit you have that mutual self-forgetting, self-deferring mutually fulfilling relationship in the heart of eternity and it's in that image that we were created 
And so that's why it's important that in our relationships, we are mutually fulfilling. That we're not serving ourselves, but we're serving one another. In our marriages, in our friendships, in our work relationships, we are about not just getting value, we're also about giving and investing value. We're about developing fulfillment in the lives of those with whom we have relationships. We're made for that mutual fulfillment. And we were made also to partner with God in responsible creativity. God made us in His image. And the first thing we know about Him, other than His triune nature, is that He is the Creator. He is the one who speaks things into existence. He is the one who crafted us with His hands, who picked up dirt and formed us, who breathed into us the breath of life or the spirit of life, making us a living being. And He's the one that calls us to be creative, to have dominion over the earth, to, to, to be fruitful and multiply, which is also a creative act. And you may say, hey, look, I'm not the artistic type. I'm not a creative person. I don't think creatively. That's fine. We all create in different ways. Uh, Blaise Pascal, medieval uh, philosopher and apologist, I think also a mathematician and pastor, teacher, he said that God instituted prayer to communicate to creatures the dignity of causality. He talked about prayer as being entering into the creative activity with God, to be able to pray for things that have not happened, asking God to make them happen, to bring them about. God invites us into that prayer dialogue. As He, as he invites us into intimate relationship, He invites us into a responsible creativity with him. C.S. Lewis doubled down on Blaise Pascal's point about prayer and said that God's also given us the, the dignity of causality through work, planting a garden, coming up with a math curriculum, like J.R.R. Tolkien, inventing a new language for elves in a world that you've created. God's made us to be creative people. And that doesn't mean that we're all artistic. It doesn't mean that we all paint well. It doesn't mean that we all are able to play music. It means that in some ways, God's wired us to, to, to use the gifts that he's given us in a creative way to bring about things that, that we're not. And he invites all of, of us also into the, the dialogue of prayer to seek God for those things which might become, to seek his wisdom, to pray for his healing and blessing, to bring our lives and the lives of our family and friends into uh, under the lordship of Jesus and to, to seek him in their behalf. Uh, Stanley Grins wrote a book called Creative for Community. It's if you're if you're interested in the things that have shaped my life, that book probably more than any other book has shaped my thinking and shaped my life uh, more than any other. Creative for community. In it, he says that we were created. Uh, to, to relate re- rightly to God, to one another, and ultimately to all of creation. He created us to be in community. To know Him and love Him and reflect Him. To know others and love others and to reflect God to them in those relationships. And to, to know and explore and learn about the world that He's created. To relate rightly to it.
when we speak about the image of God, my mind immediately thinks of the Latin phrase imago Dei, which is the image of God. And the question that comes to my mind is not just what does it mean for us to be created in His image, but what is that image specifically? What, what is the image of God? What is His likeness that He's made for us? And it's not just a part of our lives or a segment of our lives or a compartment of our lives. His image is is us. It's, it's, it's the totality of our humanity, really. John Wesley spoke of God's image in us in three ways or three categories. He talked about the natural image, the political image, Banks, and the, the moral image. The natural image, Wesley said, is our ability to be free. God created us for liberty. God himself is free, free to create. Why did God create the world? Because he could. We may say, well, why didn't God create another world? Well, how do you know he didn't? But we don't know. God is free to create, free to make us in his image, free to give us dignity, free to give us the ability to create, free to give us the ability to cause things, to make, even tragically, to destroy But God created us to be free, to know liberty, and He created us to be happy, to know joy. He created us for this. In fact, the the early church fathers and all throughout the medieval church spoke an awful lot about being happy. Now it seems like the only Christians that talk about being happy are wearing overpriced suits and wear lots of makeup and are surrounded by tens of thousands of, of adoring fans. But the scriptures have a lot to say to us about being happy. And and most especially, they tell us that true and eternal joy and happiness is found in God. It's found in knowing Him. It's found in relationship with Him. He created us in His image to understand with knowledge, to be knowledgeable to have intelligence, to to be able to think, to be able to learn, to be able also to will, to have volition. This is what it means in in a natural sense of what it means to be created in God's image. He created us to be free, to be happy, to understand, to will. But he also created us in his political image, Wesley said. And that political image is not about just politics, it's, it's about how we relate to others. Politic even means it, it, it's about people. It's about society. It's about the ordering of communities. And being made in his political image, Wesley said that we're made to, we are made with the capacity to bring order out of disorder. The capacity of governance and justice to be able to fight for those things that are good for the sake of our fellow man to bring about order so that others won't be destroyed by disorder. To have the responsibility or or to have responsible dominion and stewardship. He he entrusts us with the world he's created. He's, He's entrusted us with the gifts that he's given to us. He's entrusted us with our finances. He's entrusted us with the people in our lives, with our relationships. He's entrusted us to be responsible as stewards of those things and those people and those communities in which we find ourselves and with which we find ourselves. 
Wesley said he also created us in his moral image. To reflect him, I keep saying. He created us to be righteous, to share in his holiness. You can't get away from that when you read, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Something there has to do with reflecting God, with looking like him. After all, that idea of being an image invokes in our minds a mirror, as it was, of who God is. If he's the sun, then we're the moon. We're the one that's reflecting his brilliance, reflecting his life and his light. Wesley, in his sermon, The New Birth, said that he, that is man, was therefore created able to, able to stand and yet liable to fall. He made us with incredible capacity. He made us with incredible ability. He made us to be creative. He made us to be life-sustaining and life-fulfilling. He created us to do good, to freely know Him, to freely love Him, to freely reflect Him. And yet, creating us with that freedom, He created us with the inevitable risk as created beings that we might not know Him, love Him, and reflect Him well. We might turn from Him. We might disobey Him. He created us able to stand and yet liable to fall. And oh, that fall is great. Thomas Oden said, Made in the image of God, humanity is intended to participate in the blessed life as persons who acquire habits, personality traits, and in the long run, moral or immoral characters, we habitually come to act in ways that make us more or less fit to receive divine blessings. Another typo, Bill. Sorry. Diving blessings or divine (laughs) blessings, as it were. As moral decision makers, we act concretely in good or evil ways that either please or displease the holy, just, and good God. Again, able to stand and yet liable to fall. He created us in His image to know Him, to love Him, to reflect Him. He created us With freedom, because love requires freedom. And with freedom, though, comes the risk of disappointment and hurt and disorder and pain. The pain of disorder and hurt. John Oswald, in his introduction to the book called To Be Holy, said the fate of the Christian church, in fact, this is the first line of the introduction of his book, The fate of the Christian church in America and around the world depends upon what the church does with the biblical doctrine of holiness. Because it is for holiness that we were created to rightly know, love, and reflect God in all of our relationships. Sin has, of course, affected God's image in us. And the question is, how? Well, Sin has disordered, if not destroyed, the totality of God's image in us. It has affected everything. It has touched on every aspect of what it means to be a person. It has damaged and disordered 
all of our relationships. It has damaged and disordered all of our capacities, all of our abilities. Yes, we can know great things, but we can also forget. We can also miscalculate. We can also misunderstand. In fact, we can have all of the facts before us and still misinterpret them sometimes. Sin is disordered. The totality of God's image in us. And sin always brings death. It always kills the soul. Always robs us of our true selves. And always dehumanizes. Because sin isolates. It divides relationships. It drives us away from one another. Not just in a cultural way. We, we hear about racism and hatred and we see it and it's disgusting. And we talk about people being driven apart from one another, being divided into, into tribes and subcategories and whatnot. But sin does so to us, not just culturally, but also relationally. In our real relationships in, in life, it drives us away from one another. It divides us. It isolates. We see that in the ability that we have to compartmentalize life. To hide things away. To keep this from affecting that. Knowing all the while that everything in us is always going to affect everything else. We see it when we begin to withdraw from one another. To hide from our friends. To protect ourselves from what they might get to know about us. I, um, this week on Friday, I uh, came across a couple of things um, that have kind of been living with me for the last few days. And one seems kind of, well, they both are kind of odd. Uh, the, the, the way they've been kind of living in my brain for the last few days. But um, in the morning, I, uh, I went to check my phone. I hadn't seen it in a, in, a, in, a, in a bit, and so I looked at it, and a name stuck out, and I immediately thought, oh, no, because I knew what was probably being said. And it was the name Anthony Bourdain. You may, that may, name may not mean a thing in the world to you. He's a celebrity chef. Um, and if you've been to our house, you know that Lindsay and I don't like hide things. Our movies are out in the living room. You can see what books we're reading. You see what books we intend to read because they're the ones that are piled up with dust all over them. The ones that aren't dusty, those are the ones we're currently reading. But Anthony Bourdain, he's a, he's a TV personality because he was a chef in New York. And he's a very, he's a very rough, vulgar personality. Uh, but he's, he's someone that I've always been interested by and the news of course was that he had committed suicide at the age of 61 and when I saw his name I thought this can't be good and immediately my suspicions were proven correct and um, the word at first was simply that he passed away and I, I knew he, he had to have committed suicide. If you know anything about him you know that he's, he's, he's always been rough he's always been kind of dark and edgy and whatnot, but um the thing that stands out to me is he's a guy that, by the world standards, we would think has life, as David would put it, by the tail. He's got money. He's got celebrity. He's got a name that people recognize. He's got TV shows. He's been in 
on TV and in restaurants for decades now. Um, he travels the world. He gets paid well to travel the world and to eat in places that I'll never eat, to see things that I'll never see, and yet he took his own life. And that's not uncommon. It's becoming increasingly more common. You know, earlier in the week, Kate, Kate Spade, a designer, a creator by definition, took her own life. They both took their lives by the same method. Just minutes after, after I saw that news, Bill, I pulled up Facebook, and a video popped up in my news feed by Taz, the resident artist. She had posted the Beatles song, Help little video, music video. And, of course, I listened to it. I, I liked, I'm not a huge Beatles fan, but I like the Beatles, and I particularly like that song, Help, because it reminds me of being a kid, because my dad and I, we'd listen to the Beatles some, and um, I remember watching the movie Help uh, way back in the day. And I listened to the song, and I've listened to it several times since. I, in fact, I listened to it just this morning. Um, Help, I Need Somebody. And in the course, he says, would you please help me? Help me if you can. I'm feeling down. Help me get my feet back on the ground. Won't you please, please help me? That song's been living in my brain rent-free for the past few days. And, you know, it's a, it's a fun, kind of silly song, but... If you listen to the words, we say that all the time in church, just listen to the words. But if you listen to the words of that song, it really is the, a, a natural, innate cry of the human soul. I don't know why John and Paul and Ringo and George, George I feel like George is always the forgotten one. I don't know, he's the one that, whose name I can never come up with. Ringo, I, he's one of the first ones always for me. But I don't know why they wrote that song, but if, but if you think about the words of that song, it is a natural human longing. When we are hurting, when we are isolated, when we are alone, there is a longing within our souls for someone outside of ourselves to come alongside and to help. And if there's not somebody in your life that you can say, I need somebody to simply talk, simply listen, to simply spend some time to help me get my feet back on the ground. Then you need somebody like that in your life. Wesley, in his sermon, The One Thing Needful, said that the, the one thing that is needful in our lives, the one, the one thing for which our lives need to be aiming, the one thing... The main thing, the big thing, the big picture that the gospel calls us to is this. To recover our first estate. That is the image of God. To be born again. To be formed anew after the likeness of our creator. To re-exchange the image of Satan for the image of God. Bondage for freedom. Sickness for health. To regain our native freedom. That is the one thing that is needful. And that is the one thing that we see around us that no one seems to have. We all know sickness. We all know bondage. We all know, we may not like to call it the image of Satan, but we all know the image of Satan. 
In fact, Satanism as a religion, it's not so much about offering sacrifices to some horned, hooved, goat-like creature as much as it is about living for yourself, living for your own bodily appetites and desires. It is the epitome of what Paul called the flesh. Self-serving, self-grabbing, self-pleasing, self-fulfilling, self-defining. Everyone else, God, others, responsibilities, everything else and everyone else being pushed out if they cannot serve me and mine and mine. Wesley said the great thing that we need is to re-exchange that image for the image of God. To re-exchange the bondage into which we've fallen for freedom. To re-exchange the sickness that we know because of sin for health. To, to regain our native freedom. That is the one thing needful. To be born anew, born again. To be reshaped after the image of God. Thomas Oden, quoting fairly lengthy from um, Wesley's sermon, Heavenly Treasure and Earth and Vessels, said this. He said, Man has long been a riddle to himself, a vexing mixture of nobleness and baseness. The deeper one's self-exploration proceeds, the more mysterious one may become to oneself. The biblical account is clarifying. The reason for human greatness is that humanity is made in the image of God. The reason for human baseness is that freedom has fallen. By juxtaposing the creation with the fall of humanity, the greatness and littleness, the dignity and baseness, the happiness and misery of his present state are no longer a mystery, but clear consequences of his original state and his rebellion against God. It may not be a popular theme, but it is our fall into sin that has brought all the world's misery upon us. This is the key, Odin says, that opens the whole mystery, that removes all the difficulty. By showing the difference between what God originally made and what man has made himself. We've done a terrible job. Though fallen into a dismal history of sin and rebellion against God, the human self is being made capable by grace of reflecting to a greater or lesser extent the image of God. This is the mystery of human existence. It's grandeur and misery. It's glory and shame. This is the wonderful, he goes Latin here, compositum of humanum. The human capacity for reflecting the goodness of God precisely while rooted in the natural causality of time and prone to sin. This is what we are made up of. A totally nuanced conflation of opposites. A blend of God's grace working within the disordered human freedom made in the image of God, yet fallen into a history of sin. Now that's one you'll have to read several times this afternoon and dig through. But it is the image of God that explains the great beauty 
of the human experience and yet the, the horrible tragedy of the human experience. We were made to be replicas, to be mirrors, to be people who know and love and reflect God. And we chose to turn away from that and still made in His image. We have the power to do great harm and horrible things to one another, to ourselves, to the world, to masses of people. We have the capacity for liberty, not just to have it, but to be conduits of it. And we have the capacity for tyranny. Not just to be under it, but also to impose it upon others. We were made in God's image. To know Him, to love Him, to reflect Him. To relate rightly to Him, to relate rightly to one another. And interestingly, Jesus and the Apostle John said, we cannot say we relate rightly to God, that we love Him if we're not in love with our neighbor. If we're not in love with our fellow man, and He begins specifically with the church. If we're not loving fellow Christians, whether they be people with whom we rub shoulders at church, or whether they be people who are suffering on the other side of the globe, if we're not actively loving those people that God has placed in our lives as our brothers and sisters in Christ, we cannot say that we love our Father in heaven. And if we love them, and if we, if we love them rightly, and if we love God rightly, then we will find that those relationships feed off of one another. As our love for God grows, our love for our neighbor grows. As our love, true, genuine Christian love for one another grows, our love for Him will grow. So what are we to take away from this? A couple of, a couple of things that answer the so what question. Number one, we need God more than we often realize. We were made for Him. We were made to know Him, love Him, and reflect Him. We need the Scriptures. We need prayer. We need worship, this activity. Wesley, in his sermon, The End of Christ's Coming, not like what the purpose, the goal of Christ's coming, he said, real religion is a restoration not only of the favor, but also of the image of God. Implying not barely deliverance from sin, but being filled with the fullness of God. We need Him more than we often realize. And along with that, the thing we often forget as well, is that we need one another more than we often desire. Sometimes we like to keep each other at arm's length. We like to keep people safely away from us. We don't want them near. We don't want them in our abode because it's not cleaned up enough. We don't want them around our stuff because we want to protect ourselves from them. We need one another for fellowship and for accountability, for the strength that we find together. Bill and I met for coffee. Uh, a little over a week ago. And uh, he may not realize it, but he does now, or will now. He did what a good friend does. We had talked about a number of things, and 
He put everything kind of aside and looked me dead in the eye and he said, so what's going on with you? What do you need? How, how's everything going? How's life? What are you thinking? And just got my brain to start turning and thinking and processing and, and whatnot. There are pe- we need people in our lives who can look us dead in the eye and say, what's going on with you? Not in a, an accusing way. He probably didn't even know anything about it. He probably didn't realize the significance for me of what he was asking. But just that awareness and that in to be so connected with one another that we're willing to ask about life, to ask about work, to ask about how family's going, what's happening. We need one another more than we often desire because... God has created us in His divine image. I know it's warm in here, uh, but I'm curious. Do you what what are what do we need to spend a little more time on? Has anything um, any follow up questions or anything like that piqued your interest or you want to wrestle with? You know how to? Yes, Tom. Yes, um, so often the gospel is presented as the good news that God can can simply claim that we are something, that, that He can claim that we're His children, that He can claim that we've been made righteous without us actually becoming like His children and without us actually becoming righteous in Him. Now, Wesley and all throughout the Scriptures it is very clear that our righteousness is always contingent upon our relationship with Him. But the the good news of the Gospel is that God has the ability, because He's made us in His image, and because He is the Creator, He can do whatever He wants. Because of the nature of His grace, He can actually bring about into reality the potential that we have in Christ. That we can not just be claimed by God to be righteous, but that we can be made righteous in Him and in His Son Jesus. As we yield ourselves to His Holy Spirit, the image of God tells us our fall is incredibly great and horrible and our potential to be made right with God is incredibly great. God can, can make us to reflect Him. And that's not something that we have to wait to heaven to get to. Others? If anything comes to mind, you know how to reach me. Let's pray. Father, we pray that 